This is Adrian Ivachiv. It's nice to have you on the other end of the microphone. Where, where are you, Adrian? I, I don't remember where we're taping this from. Vermont, Colchester, oh, good. Vermont. Okay, yeah. Um, I just actually sat down and put my headphones on, and uh, I'm looking at my producer behind the glass to see. I think they want us to just chit-chat for a minute and get levels. Okay. Tell me, um, before we start, if, there's, if you have any questions of me about the program or... Not really. I guess the one thing that I've been just kind of curious about is is what proportion of um, your interviews actually end up getting, getting used and what mm-hmm. proportion gets cut if there's an average. Well, it's kind of hard to say an average. I tend to do an interview of an hour or more. Um, now I'm hearing an echo, but I... Oh, 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 oh. You mean you mean whether we will use the interview at all or how much is Oh, I wasn't thinking of that, but that's that's another question no, I guess. No, you mean how much of it might be edited? Yeah. Oh. Mitch, do you hear the echo? It's okay. Um it depends on whether we end up using uh, whether we end up using one or more voices in a program. So that if it is one voice, it's you know it's about forty minutes of, of the forty minutes of an interview that gets used. Mm-hmm. Okay, could I ask you to um, to turn down your headphone volume, or or ask the engineer just a little okay. bit? Make I'm, sure make sure that your he- that your ears are uh, covered as much as possible by the earphones. Um, you know that, that you have as good a fit as possible. And I'll turn turn it down until until you can't hear her. Anymore. Okay, but it it does sound pretty loud in my headphones oh, to me, okay. at least my yeah. voice. But now that's better. Okay. But I still hear an echo. At you my hear an end. echo. Yeah, okay. You'll hear an echo, but hopefully during the actual taping that won't be there. Okay, I I am not hearing the echo anymore, so that's good for me. Okay, I hope that you won't be giving us his, him back. I hope okay. your earphones will be nice and isolating during the interview. Okay, Adrian, can are you? Why don't you talk for a minute and see if I can hear an echo? If you can hear an echo of your own voice. Okay, I don't think I can hear it right now. Tell me, tell me what you had for lunch. Uh, I had. <laughs> I'm trying to remember. It was some sort of uh, grilled veggie muffaletta or something <laughs> like that. Okay. Some kind of sandwichy type thing that's new at the place <laughs> where I ate. Okay. Do you hear an echo? You all right? I I don't hear an echo. Okay. I think we're good. Um. Yeah. So to your question, um, it can be. I mean, it really depends on the conversation. There's, there's often, I, I think uh, there's often time at the beginning of an interview like this or even into the interview where we're talking, where we're just kind of warming up and talking about more personal things um, that is cut. And then the line we're always trying to walk in the program is, um, is one of, you know, accessibility, you know, making sure that what is said is also set up so that a listener can be coming in at a, at a more sophisticated level or knowing nothing at all. And sometimes I <clears throat> end up doing that in the script and the narration. I don't know, is that answering mm-hmm. your question? Am I giving you more information than you wanted? 
Yeah, it's it's uh, the perfect answer. I think. Okay. <laughs> All right. Good. <laughs> We're ve- we we don't. Uh, I'm very. Pr- we've never had anyone. I don't think we have had anyone complain that it was edited in a way that it um, changed what they said. We're really really careful about it. So. That sounds great. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, I think what's important to me in the in my conversation with you right now is that I think it's I think it will be really important to hear your voice and your story. You know, kind of the narrative first person approach to this. Not that it all has to be personal, but if you kind of act as our <clears throat> tour guide into this into this different world. Um, that you've traveled in. And I, I know you've traveled there as a scholar, and I want all of that knowledge to be in. But just um, that we... I, I think that the tricky part of, of, you know, talking about paganism and New Age is that is when it becomes to sound too abstract and too divorced from um, kind of a real life. And I, I actually think that when... it Just especially in the, you know, in the emails you wrote to Jody, and... Um, uh, you know, I, I sense that when you when you talk about <clears throat> when you put yourself into the picture, when you're describing what you know and what you've seen and experienced. I'm sorry, I have someone. Okay. Oh, okay. Hmm. Okay. I'm having my microphone adjusted. Okay. All right. Um. Here to your right. Yeah, so I d- the trick is to stay here. Sorry, I'm talking to <laughs> oh, the all right, engineer. All right, all right. Mm-hmm. So while we're adjusting mics, I figured. <laughs> so, I mean, did, does that make sense? What I'm saying? Yeah, I, th- I think you're in the middle of a in thought. In the middle but of a I sentence. Think I Just that when you the... keep yourself in the picture, even when you're describing what you know and have seen of <clears throat> of other people's experiences in other places, then it's something mm-hmm. that people can grab onto and can hear. Right. Um, so, I really do want to start with your what you called someplace your personal pilgrimage. Um, you you were born you're Ukrainian Canadian, right? You were born mm-hmm. in Canada, and were, yeah. your parents were em- immigrants to Canada. That's right. My parents were both post-war mm-hmm. uh, refugee emigres mm-hmm. uh, from Eastern Europe, from what's now Western Ukraine. Right. Uh, they both arrived around 1950 through various displaced persons camps and whatnot in and, Canada. And they were um, Ukrainian Eastern Rite, Greek Catholic. That's right. Mm-hmm. Which I think a lot of people, you know, many people don't even know about um, Eastern Catholics. Um, yeah, it, it's, I mean, some of the. Di- what, I mean, how do you describe that to people if if they ask you what the difference is from sort of Roman Catholic? I mean, what it, it's a bit of a hybrid mm-hmm. in that it's really comes out of the Greek tradition of Orthodox Christianity, um, out of which Russian Orthodoxy comes out as well. But at some point in history, about 400 years ago, they they, uh, entered into a union with with Rome and became Catholic, although the ritual didn't really change very much. It has a little bit over the years. But in a sense, it's sort of the the odd church out within Eastern Europe right now in that it's not orthodoxy 
and it's not Roman Catholicism, mm-hmm. so it does get confused, and, and, and it has had some difficulty finding its place, in a sense. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, there's some interesting differences in that, I believe, orth- um, Eastern Rite Catholics can, or Catholic priests can marry as Greek Orthodox priests can. Is that right? That's right. In fact, my father, um, when he retired, decided that he wanted to go back and um, do what he had always wanted to do. He had studied theology over the years and decided that he wanted to become a Ukrainian Catholic priest. (laughs) And it wasn't looking all that possible at one point. Uh, Ukrainian Catholic bishops in North America aren't supposed to ordain married clergy. Right. And there are various kind of exceptional circumstances. And you're supposed to be married before you before you become ordained, generally. Generally, mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in and in his case the exceptional circumstance was that he went to Australia. He was told by his bishop, I don't know how much of this I should make public, um, that that the bishop in Australia is fine about ord- ordaining married clergy because he's so far from Rome that it doesn't really matter. <laughs> so he ended up spending some time a couple of years in Australia and becoming a priest and being quite happy about that, as was my mother, who was the daughter of a of a, of a priest and really comes from a kind of very um, Ukrainian Catholic priestly kind of family. Mm, that's so interesting. Now, then you describe, how did you, how did you then start to um, get interested in pagan traditions and native faith and new age, the, all of these various words we can use to describe this this kind of spectrum of religion. I guess it was just part, part of the process of growing up was, was asking questions about myself, about my identity, about my tradition. And it was, for me, pretty easy to do that because I was growing up in a kind of, in a place of, of strangeness or tension between this um this this ukrainian life that although you know we we were living in a kind of diasporic community in canada but in a city of 3 million where there were 100,000 ukrainians and and we were going to ukrainian schools and ukrainian churches and i was trying to reconcile that side of my life with being a regular canadian north american mm-hmm. and it the the two didn't really mesh and then as i got older and started studying the history of of Eastern Europe, the other tension that grew was the one that, that, and this is the case for for any national community, I think, even in the United States, at least traditionally, you're brought up knowing the national myth, which Mm -hmm. is a certain version of history that's purified of various kind of counter versions of it. And Mm -hmm. I grew up with that with respect to Ukraine. But then when I started learning the history, I started realizing that, well, it's not quite like that. There were other people who lived in that same part of the world. The borders weren't exactly as 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 huge as, as we learned in Ukrainian school and so on. And I got interested in that part of the world all the time, all the while feeling a kind of sense of, you know, maybe that's my my real place, my real home over there, mm-hmm. but having no direct connection to it until I traveled there. So, and so it, was, it was this mixture of motivations, I guess, that got me to question things, to, to become interested in religion as a phenomenon, because here I was being brought up in a tradition that was, you know, it had everything you wanted, except that it just didn't jibe with my everyday life in in normal North American culture. Right. So there was a kind of gap that I felt I had to bridge somehow 
And I did that by reading about other religions, by 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 starting to think about how well maybe the the kind of religious traditions that I was brought up with are just, in a sense, fossilized versions of other sorts of things that were very different. And, and that's where I came upon the idea that, yeah, in fact, within Christianity, Christianity itself, you have various traditions that are very oriented around the agricultural cycle, around various kind of peasant-based mm-hmm. um, everyday activities for people hundreds of years ago. And I, I felt that that side of my own tradition appealed to me more than some of the other stuff, the dogma and the, the kind of bookishness that here's the truth in a book and here's what you're supposed to do and you're supposed to do this every week or every day or whatever. And, and, and so to me there was that kind of living connection with something, with, with a place or with some some traditions that were lived on the land and that's what I felt a kind of desire to explore and that's what set me off, in a sense, on, on, on a journey which ended up becoming an actual set of travels as well as a kind of intellectual one. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, so you were, you were originally drawn to just this, um, to this idea of the land and kind of drawn to the land um, where your family had its origins. And then through that through that focus, I mean, you ended up actually also looking for those impulses in religious traditions and in the native traditions there. Is that, I mean, is that right, a one yeah. way to trace it? Okay. Yeah, and it wasn't just the, the lands where my family came from, but also I, I started getting interested in, in other things that seemed to um, have that sort of connection. So I traveled in, in the British Isles and I wanted to go to the west coast of Ireland where people still spoke Irish or or to these places that weren't urban and weren't colonized. These by places the are so wild. But those places are wildly beautiful and also just kind of organically mystical. <laughs> The places and, you're and, describing. And very easily romanticized yes. by people like me who were searching for those kinds of things. Yeah. <clears throat> and yet, I mean, there is something in those places that's almost palpable that you can give all kinds of different words to it. But um, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. it, it's not a one-way thing, although in, in a sense, what a lot of my, my writing and my thinking has been about is a kind of this state of global homesickness that, that, that certain people, generally the, what I would call the unsatisfied privileged, people who are privileged <laughs> enough to have, have the time and the energy to think about what they're missing in their everyday life, mm-hmm. but they're not satisfied with the usual answers to that question, being more shopping for clothes or more shopping for religions or shopping for whatever else. So, so this kind of sense of pervasive homesickness that one finds probably, I think, growing up in a, in a modern city where you, you don't necessarily feel connected, feel a tangible, emotionally satisfying connection to the material world around you. And, and, and so you've, you feel that you need that and you project your desires onto places that represent that. And those are the kinds of people that I, that, that I have been exploring in, in my research, but I also see myself as, in a sense, one of them. Right. Um, I mean, and it's kind of interesting to me that I, I, I think when we talk about or the, the popular image of... <clears throat> I'm sorry. The popular image of, say, New Age religions or paganism would be 
to be uprooted from religious religious traditions as we think of them in our culture. And it's I mean it's kind of intriguing to me that you came to these traditions, these um these mm, ways of being of thinking about the sacred and being religious in fact through thinking about homesickness. I mean, a sort of longing for roots. And you, in fact, managed to put these things together, these pagan traditions that we associate with the New Age, with ancient roots in Ukraine. And that's something that I I think a lot of people who are looking for these things, if they have that kind of avenue open to them, they they follow it. And by that I mean that, you know, if, if you don't really have some obvious roots in some part of the world where your parents came from, then it's difficult to do that. Or Mm -hmm. if you want to connect with the North American landscape, then you have to kind of work through the fact that Europeans came here and there were Native Americans who who lived here for millennia before that. But if you do have a place that you can go to, or at least think about going to, and then eventually go to, and I wasn't, I, I tried, but actually couldn't get into the, the former Soviet Union until, until it um, I became a, and until it was on the verge of falling. I, mm-hmm. I was a Canada USSR scholar in 1989, the last year oh. of, of the whole thing, really, yeah. which was a f- fantastic time to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so, so in a sense, I did come with with various um, hopes and 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 uh, various romantic kinds of ideas but i was also getting pretty sophisticated in in understanding that they are romanticized ideals and that maybe this this sense of homesickness that i'm feeling maybe it's just a kind of universal condition that any psych- psychoanalyst will tell you that we all feel on some level so um yeah i'm not sure if that's getting at what you're had you had you read about. um i mean you mentioned that that you started reading that originally it was sort of the writings of Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell um that that was that you were reading when you were kind of thinking outside um the boundaries of the of the religious tradition you'd grown up in and then you did come to Margot Adler and Starhawk these kind of classic New Age texts, classic <laughs> modern New Age texts that were written in the late 70s in this country. So you had had you read those, though, before you then went to Ukraine and started delving into the history of this? I read everything. I was reading Buddhism and, and Hinduism and, and mythology and, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, spiritual teachers like Gurdjieff and Sufism and right. everything else. So it, I, I was kind of... Uh, omnivorous in a sense in terms of reading about these things and trying to make sense of of my feelings and my experiences Um, but uh, yeah of course I I had read those things before going to Eastern Europe Mm -hmm. and and I think I'll um, stop there okay Was your question uh, going somewhere, or did I answer it? Um, well, let me let's. I mean, let's go there. Let's go to um, to what you discovered in in Ukraine. I was quite interested to read. You wrote that um, in the East Slavic world, 
neo-pagan and native faith um, never completely disappeared until the 19th or 20th century. That's fascinating. Well, it's it's true and it's not true. It's mm-hmm. true partially in the sense that that certain things that people did, certain traditions related to the agricultural calendar and and other activities um, did continue, but they were Christianized in a sense. They were they, they were incorporated into different ways of thinking about them. Mm-hmm. So and and there are practices that ethnographers were were finding in in kind of more isolated, remote parts of of Ukraine or Russia or most of those countries that seem to have clearly very pagan sorts of pre-Christian elements to them. So kind of fusion of paganism and Christianity. Absolutely, yeah. Give me an example. What do you think of when you think of that? Well, I guess some of the the sort of faith healers or or just healers that you find in villages in the Carpathian Mountains are doing things that are really a fusion of everything that they've ever come across and that <laughs> seems to make sense or work for them. It's mm-hmm. kind of like a, a bricoleur uses whatever tools are available. So you use prayers that are obviously Christian, but you're doing things that, that would have been could have been done 2,000 years ago. And you're also using bits and pieces of, of something that you read about astrology or whatever else. It's a very um, you know anything goes kind of practice as long as it works. And it works because the the people that you're working with have faith that it works <laughs> right and yet they identify as christian and and don't 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 have they don't perceive there to be any tension between using those as those kinds of older other methods and and being orthodox christian for the most part yeah mm-hmm. at least until until native faith came along which which is trying to recreate pre-christian traditions while kind of purifying them of what they consider to be later and foreign imported elements. And that that becomes a bit risky because, first of all, you have to have scholarship to support your ideas of what what the original things were. Mm-hmm. And secondly, because it sets up a dichotomy that, that uh, presumes, in a sense, that we've got something that's more authentic than other people do. And when you're living in a world where... Um, religious organizations are competing with each other for for believers in a sense the sociologist Eileen Barker talks about the Soviet Union as as um, I can't remember the term she uses but basically a kind of you know it's almost like a, a war for souls hmm. and in that sort of situation people get very defensive and 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 it raises people's shoulders instead of you know being welcomed it's it it becomes perceived as this this kind of craziness that society can't really deal with. And I mean, it's, I suppose it's a war that's only made possible because the battlefields were closed <laughs> so off, so so long, and and now there's suddenly this possibility of of trying to claim souls for religion for religion yeah, for religions. Um, you know, I, I want to I want to know about about native faith, and but I, I'm 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 still curious. I'd like to know more about how these pagan traditions have been preserved. I mean, were you aware of anything that you now recognize as as pagan or native in the way your parents approached their kind of Eastern Rite Christianity? Well, I think in the same sense that that 
North American pagans don't, instead of celebrating Christmas, they celebrate the winter, winter solstice, solstice or mm-hmm. Yule, basically, is a term that, that both sides can use, I think. Right. <laughs> and and most of the Christian calendar has been, in a sense, grafted onto what had previously been around yes. in, in Europe, which was a largely agriculturally based calendar in which the, the winter is about things dying and about kind of carrying through the light uh, lighting candles through this dark period with the hope that that life will resurrect in the spring and mm-hmm. then of course Easter is sort of when it does resurrect in the Christian calendar and 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 in the pre-Christian calendar mm-hmm. and that goes on through the whole year through to harvest time the summer solstice being sort of the the peak of 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 solar energy the peak of of life energy of all that green stuff just flowering in its full force so on uh, on on the summer solstice the midsummer's night then they there would have been all kinds of things going on bonfires and rituals and whatnot and that gets preserved to some extent in in um what's now saint john's day which is celebrated two weeks or 13 days later because the calendars have shifted apart which which, which <laughs> the is, explains why the eastern the, and western calendars you mean yeah yes. yeah exactly uh-huh. so it's saint john's day i don't know saint john's day in in, in ukraine it's called ivana kupala and kupala is an ancient name for mm-hmm. what what some scholars at least consider to have been a god or or possibly a goddess and um, some of the things that would have would have occurred on that day is the building of uh, uh, the the creation of these straw effigies and then burning these effigies and either sending them down the hill into the river or something like that. So, fire and water being the two the the two elements there, and that would still have been done up until the twentieth century. In fact, mm. in fact, even until now. But, but when it's called. No, there was kind of a funny click we heard. Did you hear that? Well, well, we'll see if that happens again. Yeah. Are you there? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, hopefully won't, that won't happen again. Uh, well, but I, I suppose if you if you then call it St. John's Day, it's a, it just sounds Christian. I mean, I think most people would assume that it was after, uh, I don't know, perhaps the writer of the fourth gospel or... Well, and and the answer to to that conundrum is mm-hmm. not either or, but but and and mm-hmm. it's it's one and it's the other. It's whatever you want it to be, which is, I guess, the beauty of of that double faith or or uh, what in Ukrainian is dvoyevidia. It's actually a, a a term that historians of religion use. It's that kind of fusion of faiths that al- allows you to continue things within a new. Uh, context and and under a new kind of veneer or package. Hmm. I think people, let's say Christians in the West, would be very disturbed. I mean, I don't think we have any memory of, as you say, how how our calendar, how we how the passage of the way we mark the passage of time, and even religious holidays was grafted onto pagan pagan ways of marking times and pagan holidays. And um, I think when you do talk about that in this country, um, it can be very disturbing to people. It seems to call into question, in fact, the authenticity um, or the validity, you know, of, of their, of the current faith. I mean, how do you, how do you think about that? Or how would you respond to that? Has that happened to you that you've 
that somebody's reacted that way to your ideas? Well, I guess I would say that religion itself, as we understand it, has undergone a, a, a real series of changes, particularly with the Protestant Reformation. And, and you know, right. over the last couple of hundred years, it's become a matter of belief and assent to to a set of doctrines. So, you know, we believe that this and this happened historically and therefore that this is what we're supposed to do or we'll be saved by b believing in, in Christ as our Savior or something like that. Whereas in the past, it was more rooted in a set of of really, you know, cultural practices that were that were based in everyday life, that were full of images and symbols and meanings, and that's the 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 side of Christianity that appealed to me when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. It was that you know the icons and candles and incense and and the chant, and that stayed with me. And that's why, in fact, I I I did find myself attracted to to new religions or to new sorts of things that had that, mm -hmm. that allowed you to get into a different state of mind. And paganism does that in, in pagan festivals in North America, very much so. But also some of these other things, these, these attempts to revive uh, pre-Christian religions, at, at least the ones that I find more, more interesting are the ones that do that. And so not all of them do, and, and some of them you mean an attempt um, to revive some kind of ancient traditions in in addition to creating these new forms? Well, not just uh, traditions, but but very much in the full sense of the word, traditions involving activities that have music and uh, sound and image and mm -hmm. and and uh, involving the body, mm -hmm. bodily practices, and all of that, rather than thinking of themselves as about uh, just a set of ideas or doctrines. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could give me a story or a more particular image, I mean, to go along with what you just said. I mean, tell me about some discovery you made early on where, where all of this suddenly was clear to you and, and, uh, and was exciting to you, some, some tradition, some place or, or festival or whatever that might have been. Well, I suppose one of the things that, that, has always been part of my life has been the arts and, and music and theater in particular mm -hmm. and and uh, the kinds of forms of theater that I've found most um, appealing have been um, in fact East European theater uh, such as the work of Jerzy Grotowski and, and there's a group called Gadzienice which is a Polish theater group that, that lives in a uh, they, they have a little base in a small village in southeast Poland, and from there they travel around and just hang out with people in out-of-the-way rural places. <laughs> they soak in their traditions, and then they put on these theaters, which are very much, um, in a sense, bare bones, not much technology at all, but just using their bodies, just using candlelight or torchlight, and, and still managing to, to create this kind of intense, almost religious experience in the process. And they deal with the elements of religion, mm -hmm. in a sense. They sort of distill them into their, their theater productions. And I, when I was traveling around Eastern Europe, I actually hung out with some of these people and went <laughs> on, on, on a few of their expeditions to places where, to a gypsy village in, in the Tatra Mountains mm. of southern Poland, for instance, mm. or, and and to a few other places like that. And it's that kind of richness of of bodily experience and, and something that's very tangible and very tactile that in 
religion or in anything that has affected me the most. And that's why, I mean, even though we're talking about religion, a large part of my life has been about environmental stuff. I teach environmental studies. Right. And I don't think that you can convince people to change their environmental practices without something that has an emotional impact and that's directly involving and that's kind of, that gets ritualized in a sense into people's lives. Well, I mean, I, I, did, I do want to talk about this and I, I was aware as you first began talking about your longings as you, you grew up and just were, were asking questions of, um, of the teachings of your childhood or, you know, questions of meaning as you grew older. And you talked about wanting a connection with the land and I, I think that um, as I have been reading you and reading into New Age literature, and it's very striking that nature and is is you know absolutely central. It seems to me it's an absolutely central theme across this um, very broad spectrum of practices and beliefs um, and and experiences that people have. I actually don't think that message is communicated very well or or the culture at large hasn't heard that. Um, and I just wanted to I wanted to, you know, ask you about that as a theme in this and also why it's not something people automatically think of when they think new age. They don't necessarily think environment. Or they wouldn't think that a you know that a scholar writing about pagan traditions would be a professor of environmental studies. But actually, having looked at it myself, I think it, it is <laughs> completely logical. Well, I guess w- we do need to make a distinction between pagan and New Age, partly, particularly because the term New Age is, has been, you know, in a sense, it's become a kind of catch-all term for this sort of faddish, right. commercialized version of spirituality where you go out and buy some crystals and, and right. whatever. But I think that some of that still, even the crystal stuff, at particular places such as Sedona in Arizona, where, where I did do some research and did hang out with some of these people, and it's I guess it's that kind of underlying sensibility that there's something about rocks about in Sedona. The formation in Sedona. Yes. <laughs> Something about the geographic formation of the earth in these huge rock, you know, lo- looming rock mount- monuments that surround you on all sides that represents a sort of power or a sense of, uh, you know, something mm-hmm. that we don't feel in our everyday lives in, in, in big cities. And ironically, the Sedona itself has become completely... Um, you know, commercialized out of all proportion to Fashionable. what a small town like that can take. <laughs> right, which destroys its environmental balance, I suspect. Absolutely. They've got various problems. Mm-hmm. But they st- there still is a huge wilderness around there that is just really beautiful. And kind of visually stunning, naturally stunning. Uh, yeah. But, but um, okay, so so you're saying that so the distinguish between paganism and and new age which which also just is a catch-all phrase for so so many impulses and movements um but within paganism would you say that this that this environmental um focus is is really central is that correct it's central for Pag- for a lot of pagans, it's central in the sense that they believe it's important, that they pay lip service to it, and that they do what they can to a kind of minor extent, at least, 
to make themselves better ecological citizens. I wouldn't say that it's central. Um, I mean, it's also central in the sense that people get their um, their imagery from the natural world very mm-hmm. often. And you find this in some in some new age stuff as well, where animals are become sort of icons and books like Women Who Run with the Wolves and mm-hmm. you know the whole Iron John thing and all of that, where you kind of you know the wilderness, the woods, certain wild animals back become, to nature, be, yeah, yeah, become mm-hmm. these totemic or iconic animals that allow us to get um, to tune into that wild side of ourselves. Mm-hmm. But you know, is that really about the natural world or is that about our imagination of it that's all right you know, that. tell me about the very old or the the forms of paganism that are being recovered in ukraine um that you discovered and how did you sort of go about thinking about it and learning learning about them well, they're they're going on in in pretty well all those countries of Eastern Europe and the post Soviet world. Mm-hmm. Um, I was interested in in discovering whether any of that is occurring because I, I I found it a kind of interesting moment when the Soviet Union collapsed and things were really opening up and 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 religion became in a sense a free option. But people who grew up in the Soviet Union didn't necessarily feel any any real tie with Christianity. No. So, so in a sense, it became a kind of puzzle. Well, what are people going to go for? That tie had been severed in so many ways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and I initially, when I was when I was um, doing some research in in 1989, I was looking at environmentalism after the Chernobyl nuclear accident. But I wanted to get a sense of whether that was connecting with any with with the kind of cultural identity, um, in, the exploration of of cultural identity that I myself had in a sense, gone through or, or set out on this sort of journey. Right. I mean, I wanted to ask you about that, actually, that you, you write about, I mean, you, you, you suggest that a kind of fusion of environmentalism and nationalism was one result of Chernobyl, and that that, in your mind, was just one of those many factors that helped precipitate the fall of the Soviet Union. And, I, you know, I, I have to say, I, have, <laughs> I haven't heard many people draw that connection, although I happen to have been on an island off in the Baltic Sea, in the days after Chernobyl, and so I know how dramatic that was, but I don't think it's gone down in uh, in our public imagination as as one of those factors. But, but it, is it your impression from from your time there that this was really important in people's imaginations? Yeah, very much so. It uh-huh. it allowed a lot of other things to occur because there was a kind of um, national independence movement growing within Ukraine in the late 80s, but having that environmental, you know, the whole Chernobyl thing to latch on to allowed that movement to grow without appearing to be um, separatist or independentist. Mm-hmm. So very much, I think, Chernobyl was a, was, was a leading factor in bringing about what happened in Ukraine, at least. And then you think that 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 the fall the fallout the, uh, the the this effect of this nuclear <laughs> this nuclear disaster this nuclear actually we should you know this is one of these things where for many of us this everyone we we think we sh- everyone should remember Chernobyl but of course we have listeners who won't have been born then um, 
this accident at this at the nuclear power plant um do, do you think that that then that all of the the fear that that raised and the then the kind of renewed sense of connection or or people's sense of the fragility of the land of nature um that that then flowed into this resurgence of native faith and and kind of some kinds of pagan impulses very much so yeah there there was definitely a a real um feeling that we've gotten so disconnected from the land we've polluted the earth on which we depend and there was a kind of blame or a sense of rage at at the soviet authorities for allowing that to happen mm-hmm. and certainly some of these uh, the these new movements they were they were cr- quite small at the time but they they grew from there from that point native faith was really fueled by that sense that we have to reconnect with the land and become responsible for it in a way that we haven't been for at least for these people for over a thousand years but for for other people at least since well before the Soviet Union. You know, I looked up on the Internet. I found um, a website for the Society of the Ukrainian Native Faith. And one of the first sentences says it was founded in Kiev in 1993, registered in 1997. And it says the Ukrainian heathenism is a generic term referring to the national religion of our Ukrainian ancestors 1,000 years ago, prior to Christianity, which is now enjoying a revival in Ukraine. Was, is heathen a, a, a Ukrainian term? It's a term that, that has been picked up. Mm-hmm. It, it's not, it's obviously an English word. Oh, that's what and I thought, they, yeah. And they don't like the word paganism because the Ukrainian uh, word the translation of that has a derogatory, com- um, derogatory kind of association so they prefer the term heathen or just native faith is is their preference, mm-hmm. which has a more positive spin to it. I think heathen. I think heathen in in its original English um, use referred to people who lived on the heath, but who were kind of it was a derogatory term. It meant <coughs> it would be, would have been um, kind of hicks. Is that right? Well, that, it would have been used that way, just yeah. as pagan had been used that mm-hmm. way for a while. And pagan, uh, the pagans were the ones living out in the country. Although there's there's a lot of debate over the et- etymology of of those words, mm-hmm. but um, heathen groups have been growing throughout Europe in northern Europe, especially, and they call themselves heathens. Mm-hmm. So they, they've taken the word. It's so and interesting. Just as um, you know, a lot of words that used to be slurs get. Um, in a sense, in hip hop, the word "nigger" is 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 used yes. by some in a positive way, which uh, is an attempt to reclaim that language. Mm-hmm. I mean, so you know, tell me about that about that phenomenon of this this revival of heathenism in Northern Europe, this revival of native faith in Ukraine. What what is it that is captivating for people, and what is it speaking to that these twenty first century Europeans? Um. Are, are embracing? Well, I don't think there's a single answer to that. I think on some level it's speaking to the desire to um, reconnect with the traditions of the land. But on another level, it's, it is a kind of defensive reaction in the face of, of a world that appears to be hostile, uh, both from east and west in a sense, 
they don't want to go back to the the arms of Mother Russia, the Soviet Union. Right in Eastern Europe, but they also yeah, but but Mm -hmm. but they also don't like the kind of um, globalization, economic globalization, free market policies, and all this other stuff that they feel will leave Ukraine very disenfranchised and kind of floating in this in this market economy that undercuts all values. So they want to find a middle ground or a place of their own and and you find that not just among the the pagans and native faith people but but among a lot of ukrainians i think but although it, it didn't play much of a role in the orange revolution of a year ago but uh, <laughs> yeah. but it's there and i mean have you i'm assuming that you've participated in services that you've spoken with people and i mean is it appealing to you and do you, do you, does it feel um we talked. You talked at the very beginning of our conversation about what was it, global homelessness. I mean, do, do do you have a sense of homecoming even in those settings? Well, here's where I become honest and say that that it hasn't been very appealing to me. Other things have been more appealing, mm-hmm. and and uh, I mean, I can I can compare a couple of different things if you like. Yeah. Uh, but some of these settings, some of the people I I like, I can have good conversations with them. I certainly disagree with 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 some of the the ways they make sense of uh, the world situation. I, I I don't agree with the kind of ethnic nationalism that a lot of them um, feel very strongly about. I don't think it makes historical sense or or sense in terms of how a, a country like that can um, can flourish in the twenty first century. But at the same time, some of the the traditions the you know, getting together in the woods and doing, um, and and getting together around bonfires and and singing songs and and basically having a good time out in the wilderness, in a sense, um, but feeling like that connects us or connects those people mm-hmm. with history and with with the history of the land, and it somehow authorizes them to defend. Um, nature to to become spokespersons for conservation and so on. All of that stuff does appeal to me, but it's not the sort of thing that has made me feel very at home there at all. My my homecoming experiences, if you like, um, have been in the midst of travels where where that feeling of you know that kind of diasporic uh, identity or sense of exile becomes accentuated you're moving around you're traveling and then suddenly you just arrive somewhere and it feels like a place where you can imagine that people have lived and people have gone al- gotten along with each other for so long and i i've i've had that in the carpathian mountains in 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 the kind of close to the Polish-Ukrainian-Slovakian border, and I've had that feeling in other places, and and even in the places that I've I've written about, I've had some of that feeling. But it has to do with, with with that um, dynamic of moving and feeling like you're not really at home anywhere, and then on the other hand, feeling like there's something right about this place that I've just arrived at. Mm. So it's a psychological space even if it happens in particular natural environments. It, it sounds to me like it's also not just an experience of the natural world, but of a relationship between human beings and the natural world. And 
Yeah, very much so. Mm-hmm. And and that goes back to childhood experiences that I had in the woods or or up up in the wilderness of of northern Ontario or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um. I I guess I I I didn't point this out and we we haven't been explicit about it but but also what you're describing some some of what you didn't like about what you found in Ukraine was had to do with the fact that there I mean that nationalism is also woven into um and and some bigotry and even anti-semitism is woven into also some of these um groups that are espousing native faith it's it's kind of a contrast to this country where where I think if you talk, if you mentioned paganism, people would think left wing, right? <laughs> and and fairly consistently, paganism in Eastern Europe tends to be on the right uh-huh. end of the spectrum. But you also have to remember that right and left don't make a lot of sense to to some of these people, and mm-hmm. and in some of these countries, they don't quite mean the same thing as they do here, right? But yeah, that I mean, there's nationalism and there's nationalism. There's a kind of civic nationalism that is inclusive and just wants to get things moving in the right direction in a given country. Mm-hmm. And then there's the kind that that's um, that really claims that one group of people, one ethnic group, or one nationality has the rightful claim to a particular piece of land, and others don't. And and you do find some of that among. Um, people of this religious persuasion, you find it among others as well, but but it's uh, it's definitely a fairly strong tendency. Right. You know, I want to ask my producers behind the glass what questions this is raising for them, and then I'm I want I'll come back. I'm going to be okay. quiet for a moment while I'm listening in my headphones. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I'm curious about how you, how this um, helps you think in a different way about, um, or just helps you make sense of the the rise of paganism, or or don't know the attraction that these traditions have in in the West in. North America, also, I don't know. You you've written about Sedona. We've mentioned Sedona. You've also written about Glastonbury, which is in England and or Wales. Is Glastonbury in Wales or England? England. It's in England. Um, and uh, now that's also a more. It's an older. It's an older tradition. But I mean, I, I I'd like to hear some more about how you've pieced together. Um, you know what's happening at the present in these different places, and you know what that all means. What? How do you think about why twenty first century people are drawn to Glastonbury or in this country to to paganism? Well, I think Glastonbury is a great case study because it. It is a place that has a lot of different associations for different people. It used to be a medieval Christian pilgrimage oh, site. King in Arthur, fact, and, right? 
And it's got mm-hmm. all those stories associated with it mm-hmm. about King Arthur being buried there and Joseph, uh, um, Jesus' oh, uncle, jo- Joseph, Joseph, was Joseph bringing yes. the young Jesus to the shores of yes. Glastonbury, which it's pretty close to the sea, so it... It might have been conceivable 2,000 years ago. Um, not that there's any evidence for that, but there are, are certainly what people in medieval times accepted as evidence, and, and the stories got firmly uh, kind of lodged into that landscape and have, and have stuck with it. But at the same time, it's a place that has a certain geography to it. It's a very distinct, distinctive kind of hill in what's otherwise a fairly flat landscape. There are these springs that, that flow out, and, 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 and they're considered to be holy springs by some people, or sacred springs. And uh, it's also, over the last 40 years, I think, taken on a certain reputation because of the, the, the rock festival, the Glastonbury Festival, yes. that takes place just outside town. So for a while, and I first visited it in 1988, and and that was a time when every summer there was a a series of events that took place in the British countryside where Stonehenge was the focus of them. And Stonehenge, of course, is is a place that goes back 5,000 years or so, and and people... um, I guess you could think of them as sort of hippies or ex-hippies. At the time, the term was still used in the 80s in England, at least during the summer, uh, would want to get to Stonehenge and Druids and other sorts of people, and they would want to celebrate the summer solstice, June 21st, there. And it became a bit of a a kind of dogfight through the 80s because the authorities didn't allow them to do that and the police would kind of and kind of hound them out. And they stopped and being lo- able to get right up to the stones also, to the they standing did. stones. Mm-hmm. They did. And one particular summer, there was a lot of violence with police with batons just ch- chasing people around and beating them up and whatever. And um, sounds odd for a, for a liberal democracy. But in fact, um, there was a fair bit of, uh, of that one summer. And a lot of the people ended up gravitating towards Glastonbury because they thought of it as a kind of safe haven. Mm-hmm. And and when I got there, I felt that way, too, because it's got this kind of old Christian tradition, which died out for a while, and yet, which which now, for Roman Catholics and for Anglicans, it, it's it's a pilgrimage center again mm-hmm. in England. And But it also has the, these other traditions attached to it, and somehow they manage to coexist. And I think it's that very coexistence around a particular landscape that that I find really interesting and that I think other people might find attractive. And, and I mean, you'll find people who've read, uh, women who've read Jean Shinoda Bolin's book, Crossing to Avalon, or uh, what's the other one? The Mists of Avalon, which is about the uh, novel by oh, Marion Zimmer, Zimmer Bradley, Bradley. Yes, about the women in King Arthur's entourage, and and yes. and they've read these books, and they they feel that wow, Avalon, sacred place, Glastonbury. Even though mm-hmm. you know we're not really sure that Avalon was Glastonbury, but mm-hmm. but it's the place that has the claim to it, and so it it attracts this multitude of very different sorts of people on pilgrimages, basically, and that that. Is something that I found fascinating, and I mean that the Druid tradition and and those stories about Glastonbury and Avalon. They, I mean, they they have fairies in them and spirits, um, which in that part of the world don't seem as outlandish, <laughs> you know, even to talk about as they do here. Um, which is something I'm, I I was quite intrigued by when when I've been in that 
in that part of the world. Um, but that's a, it's a very it's a very hard thing to talk about and be taken seriously. And I I think there's a lot of language like that imagery in pagan and new age literature that makes its way into the public realm here. And um, you know what I'm getting at? It's I mean, and you're a scholar of this. Is it is it hard to be is it hard to be taken seriously? Is it hard for you to treat this seriously? Or or do you find that, that there's something that happens when you're actually in these places, in these settings? Well, it's a challenge because you're you're right. It, it's hard to be taken seriously if you're talking about fairies and yeah. whatnot and things that are invisible. Unless you're in parts of England, it's not hard at all to be taken exactly. seriously. Exactly. Yes. But if you're if you're trying to be taken seriously by intellectuals or mm-hmm. or you know scientists or whatever, then you don't you can't really use that language. And yet, in parts of England, people use that language and. And they talk about energies in the landscape and the whatever people. else, and, yeah. and the little people, mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. And and for me, the way to reconcile that one level of reality where people talk about that and maybe experience that, and the other level, which is sort of the the material world that we can measure and and know what's going on in, is just to acknowledge that as human beings, we we have this fabulous capacity to imagine things, but it's not just a one-way kind of imagination from scratch. It's a way of putting order or putting a face to our experiences. There are all kinds of things that science doesn't explain very well, what happens when we die and so on. <laughs> That's a big one. <laughs> and, 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 yeah. <laughs> and, and as long as there are going to be mysteries... There will be, you know, everybody's going to make an effort to put a face to those mysteries, to kind of draw on whatever stories and tales and narratives and images that that have been circulating in order to make sense of those those gaps. Mm-hmm. And that's where it becomes useful, in fact, to to acknowledge that these other languages might help people make sense of things. I mean, I wonder if you have stories from your travels of um, things you experienced, people you experienced that surprised you, that, I don't know, that that you couldn't understand or just that, that struck you, fra- shaped your thinking about this. Hmm. Well, I guess, you know, as a, as a 20-something-year-old traveling in the back woods of of the British Isles or of Eastern Europe, I would have had my kind of assumptions about what sorts of things I would find when I got to this out-of-the-way place that I sort of imagined as being very mystical and 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 people are going to be at more at peace with themselves and and happy that they're not part of that rat race. Right. <laughs> And in fact, I was confronted by the shock of understanding that that's not really the case, that you know, people may be as, as much confused or, or, or not at peace with themselves as anybody else. And they may have all kinds of defensive reactions to this guy uh, coming in from, from some North American big city who doesn't really understand them or speak their language. And, and, and that shock of recognition in a sense led led to my wanting to think through all these is- issues all the more mm-hmm. i mean let's let's come back to this country we've we've pretty much been talking about this in europe and um 
what are the parallels and what are the differences between the way these ideas and these, I, I keep using the word tradition for want of a better uh, word, um, you know, the way that these that these things are alive in that part of the world and the, the way they're alive in this part of the world. I mean, you did. we talked a minute ago, you wanted to make the distinction between pagan and New Age, although they're not completely distinct, I don't think, in the literature here. These phrases tend to get lumped together, even by people in those movements. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure what you're getting at with the question. I don't know. I I guess talk to me about how what, what we've been what you've been describing about what you learned in Europe and what's what are they the same impulses in this country and what what is different here and is it is it also different here because there aren't things to reach back to that are a thousand years old. Um, well, I think one comparison that you could make is is that you know back in the sixties and seventies. There were in in the growing women's spirituality movement, for instance, there was this you know there was a lot of literature being written about how the burning of witches three or four hundred years ago was this um, terrible movement by the church to stamp out not not just heresy but to stamp out the power of women that it was associated with the the emergence of modern medicine and you couldn't have women who had any sort of power and so on, and mm-hmm. that, that nine million witches were burned and so on. And all of that has turned out to be historically inaccurate. Um, the, the truth is a lot more complex, and, and the numbers are much, much smaller. And I think most people in the women's spirituality mu- movement or, or in, in Wicca and paganism that had um, told that story 20 years ago no longer does. There, there's been a kind of recognition that, well, you know, if it's not historically accurate, we don't want to turn it into a myth that we believe in because it'll discredit us. Mm-hmm. So there's been a kind of recognition that humans are creative in a sense producers of religion and that we have an opportunity to create new traditions that are as intense in terms of the religious experience involved, but also that are that are grounded in some scholarship about the past and some understanding of the present situation of the environmental situation we're living in and so on. And I think in in the post-Soviet world, people just haven't gotten to that stage yet of recognition that, you know, you can't just take the past or what somebody, what, what your favorite archaeologist says and turn it into a kind of truth. You have to recognize that science is, and scholarship is always in the process of, of, of undercutting itself, of changing what it thinks about the past, right. and that therefore we have to start from the recognition that we create our traditions and we create our religion. And, and in that sense, you know, coming back to a question that you asked earlier about what, what do I make of um, the fact that people in North America, for them, religion is something that's very different from what maybe I've been describing. Uh, you know, in a sense, if you, if you look at the full richness of religious experience in, across cultures and across times and places, you realize that every religion is an earth religion. 
because <laughs> we are people who live on the earth who are busy trying to figure out how to do that. Mm. We've grown very distanced from that those you know that that effort to subsist on growing food and so on or hunting and gathering but nevertheless we still have to do that and every system every cultural or religious system that we create is an effort to address the situation that we face living on this planet and and you know it's just that some people still are more conscious of the fact that what they do is is connected somehow to the human situation on the earth and other people don't want to think of it that way. Mm-hmm. Why is it so hard to talk about these spiritual impulses um, without beginning to sound self-serving? I mean, do you know what I'm talking about? So personal, even when what we're talking about, we're also talking about environmentalism and ecology and uh, concepts that are very respectable and you know have gra- gravitas. Um, why is it hard to talk about these these as when they become spiritual impulses? Well, I guess there's just a certain um, tendency in our culture to turn everything in, into something that's easy, into a commodity or a fad or something that if you just mm-hmm. put on the right T-shirt, right. you become, you know, a tie-dyed shirt represents something in our culture, mm-hmm. and it becomes a, you become a walking stereotype. So it it's difficult... Because if you're serious about these things, you want to avoid that. Right. And, and you know, what I've noticed is I've been, I mean, I've wanted to get into um, paganism and Wicca. And, you know, then, you know, then you start gr- growing the list of somehow traditions or movements that seem to be somehow connected to that. Because I know that many people are interested in them or following them. And I think it's important to understand and take seriously but one thing I have noticed just getting into the literature of the movement um, as I was preparing to interview you is is that people in these um, movements themselves tend to, it, it's, it's just become such a mixed bag, you know, in the same sentence you'll have someone mention paganism, which has this long and rich history that you and I have been talking about, or and extraterrestrials and liberal Christians and occultists, um, and uh, it's 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 hard to take that seriously. It's hard to know what it is. Hmm. I think there there is a kind of slippery slope where once you've um, stopped believing that the the mainstream discourse, whether that be that of science or whatever else, you, you've stopped going along with that discourse, then you become open to everything else. Mm-hmm. And if you're not careful and if you're not judicious, then you'll just kind of start believing that all those other things must therefore be true. So there's there's that tendency, which you find with, with social movements that are on the fringes. But I don't think it's, it's, you know, the one thing doesn't necessarily have to bring in everything else. Mm-hmm. And I mean, in your work, in your scholarship and in your life, I wonder, do you see a side of um, paganism in this country or some of these other movements that is that is different than what we're describing that is grounded and or that doesn't fit stereotypes sure yeah i think I think it varies from person to person, but right. I think there definitely definitely are very grounded people who who are attracted to um to modern paganism or to something or some form of what they see as being more ancient. 
but there are there are of course going to be people who are less grounded in that sense and i've been fascinated by all of it because i think that even you know the ec- extraterrestrial thing how many millions of people claim to have been abducted by yeah. aliens yeah. in american society mm-hmm. what do you do with that fact do you mm-hmm. just say that they're all deluded or do you start getting interested in why it is that you know there's some kind of gap that that people are filling with using that imagery of aliens. Why aliens? Well, because there aren't any fairies left, so they got to come from off-planet. <laughs> right. Why are there no fairies That's left? Well, because we know, we know what, what happens in the natural world. It's all you know, managed forests and whatever else is, is almost the best we get. Mm-hmm. So, so it becomes a kind of mystery to solve, and, and rather than rejecting the things that people say, I think the as as a kind of as an ethnographer of religion one of the first principles is that you don't treat people as idiots for what they believe and mm-hmm. and and that in fact by t- treating them seriously you might get some insights that you wouldn't get to otherwise and and i think for me it's led to insights about myself as well well tell me about some of those would you I'm not sure where to start. <laughs> <laughs> we have a few more minutes. <laughs> no, really, I mean, it would be interesting. Well, I I think that, you know, we all have, have our quirks, I suppose, and, and in my case, I've discovered that I really do feel a strong attraction to particular kinds of landscapes, hmm. to particular sorts of, you know, geographical places, and I can't quite explain it. There's something that's very physical about it or very kind of sensory and there's something that's even not quite that tangible and and so you know i'm i'm drawn to particular places and i want to um to to feel connected to them so why why is that that's that's right. sort of my question and what does it mean and are there other people who feel that? And if so, I mean, take a, a movie like Close Encounters of the Third Kind. <laughs> I was just going to mention a, that, yeah. Is, is a terrible, <laughs> in some ways, movie. But mm-hmm. it's got this, this, this very weird thing going on where all these people are imagining a certain rock formation that ends up being uh, Bear Butte or... Isn't Richard Dreyfuss... The Devil's isn't he Tower. The, and isn't he, he the lead character there? I think there? so, yeah. And they start, they, these various kinds of people start start making these They're, shapes out of yeah, mud out of in their yard or yeah whatever they have going in their kitchen potatoes or mud yeah and it turns out to be the shape of this mountain that they all go to where the ship comes down that's right exactly uh-huh. and and i mean you could look at that and you could say well it's you know the, the hollywood stupefying us all trying to make us think that that intuition is going to solve all our problems and make us all happy and and you know here comes Ronald Reagan, who's going to make us happy, and so on. And you, you could do various kinds of analyses of how that film is not very good in terms of making people rational, but at the same time, it's th- just the very idea that there's this particular place that looks that way, and that people have some sort of tactile response. There's some to kind of premonition, can- also, right? Yeah. Can't these images come to them now? Okay, so I mean, this is this is going where I wanted to go. You know, when you were talking about taking these 
strange ideas, perhaps these apparent, ostensibly strange ideas that people have seriously um, as mysteries. I mean, the the truth is that um, that there are mysteries. I mean, you know that there, and I, I think uh, something on a simple, on a simpler level, your attraction to certain kinds of geography. What are you thinking of, by the way? What kinds of landscapes? Mountains? Is it? Rock formations, is that what you said? Well, I mean, generally speaking, mountains Mm -hmm. and the ocean are the two that that Mm -hmm. really come to mind. But there are specific places, too. And and certainly, you know, a place like Sedona Mm -hmm. or a place like um, um, definitely certain mountains that really stand apart from their surroundings, Mount Shasta in California or, or, you know, Banff in, in Canada, which, you know, if you could kind of imagine these places without the tourism... <laughs> That's what I'm trying to get at. But I I don't think that is such an unusual experience. I mean I think many people have that experience at the ocean or a, a, at a mountain or at very rough raw landscapes like you know you were talking about the west coast of Ireland those kinds of places or the coasts coasts <laughs> coastal areas. Um and and people have other experiences. They they have um I don't know if there are documented cases of um, people starting to create the shapes of mountains and then gravitating there. There might be, but but there are certainly people. believe me, there are. Are there? I well, because <laughs> well, I think like I saw that, that yeah. I saw that used as an example in some other book I was reading about about New Age movements here. Um, that you know that that kind of thing happens, and or people have other kinds of premonitions, or you know. These things happen to us where we know something has happened to someone we love, right? Or the f- telephone rings mm-hmm. and you know who it's going yeah. to be. I mean, there are these strange, mysterious experiences that, in fact, if you ask, if you start asking individual people if people are comfortable enough, I think most people have had some experience like that that they can't explain. Um, I guess I'm just saying, you know, what you're saying is we have to take these things seriously, Um and somehow these spiritual traditions do they do they do they validate those experiences? Is that part of what happens? I think they do, and I think they they can validate them in different ways, and we have to be careful where we take that validation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but i I definitely think they do that because you know in to the extent that they're responding to the feeling that we lack a connection with the world around us, with that material world around us, I think these traditions are attempting to validate that experience by telling us that, well, there there are places that should be considered sacred and that should be treated respectfully and shouldn't be, you know, there shouldn't be some sort of commercial developments everywhere. Mm-hmm. So how do we decide which places we want to keep aside? I think the national parks serve that function for a lot of people <laughs> in this country. Preserving sacred spaces. Even though, you mm-hmm. know, they're being managed for for the tourism and, and they're, they're not what a lot of people think they are, but nevertheless they represent something that's mm-hmm. very important. Mm-hmm. Um, and Let's say in the New Age literature, then, though there seems to be a very fine line between talking about experiences that many of us would call spiritual, 
just even just this sense of wonder before nature and then veering off into language of you know magic and spells um and i wonder you know how do you think about that as a scholar that that line and do, do you also endeavor to take that those practices seriously as well well, oddly enough, I, I try to. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not sure about the spells so much, mm -hmm. but certainly about the... In, insofar as magic is about making connections or believing that there are connections between things that uh, some of which science tells us aren't connected. So, you know, a piece of hair from someone has a, some sort of strange connection to that person even long after they're gone well we do want to believe those sorts of things why do we 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 hang stuff up on our walls and we when we move into a new apartment or a new house we completely fill that place with our own <laughs> images and mm. symbols mm -hmm. and they represent certain associations certain memories they make them our own those places and, you know, we live as we're cultural creatures. We live in image and, and story. That's what we swim in. Right. And I think, in a sense, magic is, is just another way of saying that that's what we're always doing. We're making connections between those things, and those connections are meaningful, and they're embodied in particular objects, in particular images, in particular sounds. Music has a kind of magical effect on people because yes, it does, the first yeah. time when you've heard a certain piece of music mm -hmm. affects you because of the context, and then every time you hear it afterwards, it it brings brings all that back. It's almost like a spell, isn't it? And, and now we can find out that it in fact works. It, it it works something in the brain that in fact brings those memories back physically. Absolutely. Hmm. So the brain is a magical object <laughs> in which connections are being forged by all sorts of activities hmm. and. And we may as may as well admit that. Now that doesn't mean that everything that everybody says, if if you read some popular book on magic, is you know should be taken right as literal truth. But there's something that that is being said underneath it all that I think is worth thinking about. I, I'd kind of like to circle back to what all of this has to do. Your interest in this, your seriousness about this, being an ethnographer of. Um, of this kind of spiritual spirit, spirituality, and also being a professor of environmental studies, and I wonder, if, you know, how do those things? How are those things related in your imagination and kind of practically? Well, they've always been connected for me. You know, in, on a personal level, I've been on this pilgrimage of trying to figure out who I am and what I'm supposed to do mm -hmm. on this earth, and that means learning about where I come from, where my parents came from. That means learning about. Uh, what I can do in terms of the environment that I live in, the cultural and the natural environment. And so in my scholarship and in my teaching, I focus on those connections. And, and to a large part, I think if we want to make positive change around what people do in relationship to the natural environment, we have to invoke the sorts of symbols and images or the kinds of feelings, the, the emotional feelings that people feel for the most important things in their lives. We have to make it real on an emotional level. So, so for me, culture is very much a part of environmental thinking and environmental practice and mm. vice versa.
um, I I wonder I wonder if there's something I'm not asking you, or something that's really important and central to all of this in your thinking that I'm I'm not getting at, or you know, some question that wouldn't occur um, to someone who's not steeped in all of this the way you are. Well, there probably is. I can't. I'm, I'm not sure right now. I want to. I've just. I'm going I'm listening to something on my headphones. I'll be right back. Okay. You know, when we began to speak, you talked about how you've been, how you have an idea that there's, and and how you've experienced this sense of kind of global homesickness. And I wonder if you could, I wonder how you think about um, how paganism and these, these ideas and traditions we've been discussing, how they, how they meet that, how they fill that longing in people. Well, I think, you know, there are different variations on that longing. I think a lot of people feel displaced because, in fact, some are. Some have been refugees mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. have had to move from their homeland. And what they and they have a fairly concrete idea of what they're homesick for. It's that land that they were displaced from. In my case, it was a land that was a kind of figment of my imagination. I had never been there. I only learned about it mm-hmm. in school and, and was taught about it and told about it. So so it wasn't quite a reality of my own memory, and it allowed me to ask questions about, well, what is that, that homesickness that I'm feeling? Um, in terms of some um, different pagan traditions and how they might meet that, I think, you know, there's a lot of the, people wanting to connect themselves to a particular place. I think the whole roots... Alex Haley phenomenon in the 70s mm, mm-hmm. in a sense maybe launched that but mm-hmm. it, it it made it I think fairly widespread and gave it a certain credibility that you know if we can trace our roots to a particular place that makes us somehow more than what we otherwise are and and I don't I'm not sure how that was in in the US but growing up in Canada after a while, it became almost normal that, you know, a lot of Canadians were hyphenated Canadians. You were yes. <laughs> either Anglo or French Canadian or Ukrainian Canadian or something else, yeah. Greek Canadian, and that was pretty par for the course. We're still doing that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that that kind of grafting something on to one's identity in order to feel more whole is part of it. And that sounds like a kind of su- superficial thing, but but if it allows you to explore something that makes your life more satisfying and that also allows you to feel somehow, you know, if if it's not just an imagined thing, that if you actually go back to that Ireland of your ancestors and, and, and you're not treated as this, you know, great long-lost <laughs> relative and given this great home homecoming, what do you do with that? Well, maybe that that's what people like that need to do 
in order to to finally realize that well it's not about that place necessarily it's about a place in our in our hearts that's feeling a kind of emptiness mm -hmm. and what does that say about our everyday lives hmm. you you've made this connection i i just wrote it down this way between ecology and identity i think we've talked around that and about it but is there anything else you would say about how you see the connection between those two words, those two things? Well, I guess I see it. I see that connection as one way that we can get around some of the sorts of issues that the world faces. And you find this very much in Europe and in, in the places that we were talking about, where there are ethnic groups that, that, are, that stake different claims to the same territory. Mm -hmm. And if we get to know that place, I'm working on, on a project right now that's looking at the Carpathian Mountain region in Eastern and Central Europe. And that's a region that spans eight different nations, eight, eight different countries. And potentially, the relationships between those countries aren't uh, they might not always be very good. You know, you've got the boundary yeah. of the European Union running through there. And in <laughs> other parts of the world, boundaries like that actually have ethnic hostilities. But if we learn to see ourselves more in terms of the place where we live rather than these these kind of national or ethnic narratives, mm -hmm. if we learn to, to incorporate those narratives into the narrative of the place, I think that that allows us to feel more inclusive because... If you're living in a place, right now I'm living in Vermont. I haven't lived here that long, and it's an odd thing to be teaching about place and a, about environmental or <laughs> ecology and identity when, when you've moved from one place to another to a third in your right, life. But that's right. the nature of, of our world today and of academic life in mm. particular, I mm. think. But if you, if you get to know the place where you live and get to know the people in it and the history of it, including some of the you know not so nice not sides of that history mm -hmm. not so romantic and that all of that can in a sense refocus what we do living in that place hmm. okay i i think this is great um yeah 